You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We're committed to sparking important conversations about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. Very glad to be along with you today and very excited about this show. We, I don't know how many of you listened to the show a few episodes back. We had the founders of The Quilt on, and Quilt is this co-working space, kind of like a WeWork, except it's in other people's houses, which is a, a really interesting concept. And one of the founders of The Quilt, a woman named Ashley Sumner, used to be a matchmaker. And Kelly and I By the way, we could have spent the entire show just focused on Ashley's history as a matchmaker. But instead, we said, we got to do a show about this. We have to have a matchmaker on the show. And so we've been looking for the right one, and we found her. But before we introduce you to her, let me just say for all of you who are thinking, okay, this is a money show. Where's the money? Matchmaking is big business in the United States, personal matchmaking, where you actually hire a person to introduce you to people who might be a good match for you. That's about a half billion dollar industry every single year. And it's six times that, maybe more, when you throw in all the apps and dating services and sites. And dating apps happen to be our guest specialty. She is known as the Tinder Whisperer. We're going to get the backstory on that. Her name is Meredith Golden. She is a former psychotherapist, now a matchmaker, based in New York City. She founded her company, Spoon Meet Spoon, which I love the name of that, specializing in dating apps, and she helps people find love one swipe at a time. Meredith, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It is, um, I'm excited about this because I have been fascinated with matchmaking for a long time. My good friend Gary from college met his wife through a matchmaker, and he's sadly now divorced from this woman, but which is not to say anything about the matchmaking industry because I'm divorced from my first husband and we weren't set up by a matchmaker, so it happens all the time. But for years, they used to say, we paid to meet each other, and they thought that was like the best joke on the planet. And I am just amazed that it is not only still here, but that it's grown and that it's a big business. How did you get into this? It is a big business. I fell into it accidentally. I was doing it for friends. I never even realized that my track record was successful. I never even thought, oh, people don't set up their friends and they get married. I just thought everyone set up their friends and they got married. No, I set up people who I like because I like both of them and they go on one date. Yeah, my couples kept getting married and having kids. And it was, again, it wasn't a full-time business. I would just meet someone like them. They would be interested in meeting someone and I'd you know, assess them and say, oh, I can find you a husband. Don't worry about it. And then <laughs> I'd run into someone a few weeks later and be like, you'd be perfect for my friend so-and-so. Can I set you up? You know, poof. They're married, two kids. And so, again, it was just for sport. 
I set up a bunch of my friends who got married, and then my friends who picked out their own husbands, need to say this, they ended up getting divorced. So jump cut from our mid-20s to late 30s when they started to get divorced, the technology had grown. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated. Go on a dating app, search by age, income, geography, wants kids, doesn't want more kids, divorced, widow, whatever it is. It was right there on the phone to swipe, search, and I was blown away. And, of course, I'm a bit of a yenta. I was like, give me the phone. Let me see. I want to start looking. And I realized really quickly the singles didn't like to do the work. They found it overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see straight coming out of a divorce. Or if you've been single for 20 years, it's like, where is he, she already? The patience runs thin. And I saw that there was a void in the market, and I took it over. I didn't think it would turn into what it turned into. I thought I'd work an hour a day while my kids were at school, and it, you know, blew up overnight. Well, tell us what it's turned into. I mean, what is Spoon Meets Spoon exactly? How does it work? What's the financial model? The financial model, there are three models. I think my full shebang model is the model that everyone should go for. Um, But it's expensive, so not everyone does. I do encourage people to come on just for one month because it's a good model for them to see how to do what they haven't been doing I don't want to say well, but where there's room for improvement. So they can watch me go at it for a month, and then they realize, oh, this is how you nudge. This is how things get moved along. So you actually take over people's online personas, essentially? You become them for a month, and nobody knows that. Nobody knows them. So the beauty, I think matchmaking is great. But there's a stigma associated with paying a matchmaker because the other single knows that a matchmaker has been hired. And then the person goes, well, what's wrong with them that they have to hire a matchmaker? They could be the most amazing person in the world and not have anything wrong with them, but they still need to hire someone. That stigma is completely extracted from my business model because no one knows that I'm hired. So let's just say, I know you're happily married. Let's just say you come to me. And I do my assessment. I figure out where the best dating app would be for you. I'd put you on. I do a full intake. I know everything about you. And then I'm you. So I'm in the apps. I'm swiping. I'm messaging. I turn it over to you once the single asks you out. And I say, hey, Jean, I think he'd be great. Can you meet him for a cup of coffee? Can you go for a glass of wine? 95% of the time, my single will say, oh, yeah, I want to meet him. 5%, no, he's too short. And I'm like, the short thing, this needs to stop. The short thing does need to stop. I have been married to two short men, and my husband now will want me to point out that he is taller than my first husband, but they're both short. I I love short. Like, I like to be able to look in their eyes when I'm wearing flats. You know, a good guy is a good guy outside of height. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. And if you've got Kelly is just laughing her ass off. (laughs) If you've got tall jeans in the family, Kelly, who is six feet tall, by the way, is laughing her ass off. Beautiful height. But if you've got height somewhere else in the family, you can, you know, you can make up for it or you can just wear heels or be taller than your husband. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So then there's always a fight with the single females. It's two inches. It doesn't really matter. Just go meet him. Right. And then they meet him. They're like, oh, he was great. I'm like, oh, I told you. All right. Many yeah. questions. Many questions. I'm Many questions. So a couple of the things you mentioned I think would be really helpful to the women, the men in our audience who are listening who want to meet somebody or they want their kids to meet somebody. 
When you're looking at the array of dating apps, how do you figure out which is the best one for you? Is there a match? Well, it's in my head. So once I do the intake on the clients and I have more information about them, it's pretty easy for me to decipher where they're going to go. There also aren't that many dating apps. Can you give us some guidelines? Like who's a Tinder person? Who's a match person? Who's a coffee meets bagel person? So the match is really the over 60 crew. If someone comes to me and they're in their 40s and they'll say to me, I've been on match. It hasn't been working. Well, how old are you? Um, that's the, you know, late 50s, 60s are going to match. If someone's coming to me and they're like, I just want to have fun and hook up, I'm obviously not the person they're going to hire because that's not what I do, go to Tinder. If someone's looking for a relationship, Hinge, Bumble. If they're Jewish but not super religious and they're looking for a relationship, come to J-Swipe. I mean, Coffee Meets Bagel is great too. It doesn't have as much volume as a Bumble, So I will use it to supplement, but I won't necessarily do it just on its own because there's like, I think you get maybe seven matches a day where Bumble I could swipe, you know, for hours. And how about the ones that you have to pay something for, like the eHarmonies or the... I don't want to disparage any of those dating apps. And obviously there are people who pay for them. I have yet to meet anyone who's, who's paying for them because they're free. And one person at one point, an older client said to me... Well, aren't the people who are wealthy and successful on the apps that you pay for? And I said, I understand what you're thinking, but no, I've got plenty of hedge funders, partners at law firms, surgeons, men and women, uh, who aren't going to pay for it because the vast majority of singles are on the free apps. When you look at somebody's profile— And you do your deep dive to figure out what people are doing wrong. What are the classic mistakes? Well, it's not even a deep dive. It's glaring and in my face. Okay. What What are the glaring (laughs) mistakes? Uh, So just so you know, I'm a pretty kind human being, but I spend the majority of my day rolling my eyes and wincing by what I see (laughs) just because of the lack of judgment. So the basics. There's a nanosecond to decide if you're going to swipe right or you're going to swipe left or heart or X. Have the face in the frame. Some people don't bother to view their pictures before or after they post, and it'll just be like from their torso to their knee. No one's going to spend 15 extra seconds to click on it, open it up, and see what the person looks like. They're just going to get dinged. So make it easy for the other single who's looking at them. Get rid of the hats. Get rid of the sunglasses. I like the clothing on. I see a lot of times a guy will just, you know, he's laying in bed and you can tell he's got no clothing on. I'm like, that's creepy and gross. Just, no one's responding to you. Right. Put your shirt on. Stand upright. Um, have something written in the profile. A lot of times it's blank. That's the springboard for conversation. Yes, a picture of a great trip or on a boat, not a fishing picture. That can start a nice conversation, but you can't leave it blank. There was a woman once who I met who was delightful And I looked at her dating app just for sport, and I said, you've got nothing here. And we ended up chatting, and I learned that she grew up in Asia, but she was a Jewish family, and her mom always knew where to get a challah, and she wanted to marry someone Jewish. I'm like, there's your description of yourself. That's a great springboard for conversation. People can talk to you about something. I was told, too, that you need your picture to be a springboard for conversation. Like, your picture should be a conversation starter in some way, like if you have that weird photo of you holding an owl. 
Yeah, if you have one of those, one's okay, but that it can round out and something that can move conversation forward. This is true. But I wouldn't just have one picture of an owl. I would have an attractive picture as well. There's one guy who just did a picture. He was on his belly next to his nephew, who's maybe a year doing tummy time. And he they were both looking at the camera. And it was brilliant. It was such a springboard for conversation. Oh, how cute you are. How old? Your nephew. Do you like tummy time? But he has to say, this is my nephew. This is not my kid. He did have to say that. Yeah. I feel like everybody says it now. Not my kid. Godson. Nephew. Really? Next door neighbor's kid. See, I'm not... Kidnapped the kid for the picture. I got remarried. Well, I guess these apps were around when I got remarried, but I never got on them. They're fun. Yeah. I'm sure they're fun. I'm kind of... I'm a little... having a little FOMO Yeah. My husband gets upset that he missed out. Really? Yeah. He's like, I would have done so well on the dating apps. I'm like, we're married. I think Sorry, he buddy. did well anyway. Thank you. And with that, let me just take a short second to remind everyone that fun conversations like these are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. You know, I know some people are probably thinking, again, like, you're talking about matchmaking. You're talking about a subject that is not really all that financial, except that it is. When we choose a partner we are merging our financial lives with another person. We are setting ourselves up for a future where we may have kids, which we might have had on our own, but we have other people that we have to contend with and worry about. And a former boss of mine once told me that when you write about money, you can write about life. You just have to approach it through the window of money. And that is sort of how I've built my career. And that is why we are doing this show, because I think it's important. And I'm also really struck by all of those studies that say that being married is good for your health. It's good for your happiness. It's good for your well-being, which is not to say that everybody has to be married, but it is just something to consider. And so no matter what stage of life you're in, whether you are single or married or divorced, it's vital for all women to be actively engaged in our finances and our investments. And we have to do it before it becomes a necessity. So know what you own, know what you own, know what your goals are, and have a financial checkup at least once a year. That's what it's called when you're in your financial front seat and you can Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. So you talked a little bit about traditional matchmaking versus what you're doing. Did you think about going into traditional matchmaking? Did you think about hanging out a shingle in that way? Originally, part of my business model was traditional matchmaking. But I learned within six months, anyone who I wanted to set up who was in my Rolodex of singles I would see them on all the apps. And so I realized the freshest, most up-to-date list of singles was on my phone. There was no reason to exert all this energy and effort to have someone sitting around because they could get into a relationship in three weeks. They could get into a relationship in six months. And it was just easier to access. I mean, I think I've got access to 50 million singles, like, Right here. She's lifting her phone yes. for all of you who can't see Sorry. her at this yes, point. Yes, there are so many singles on the dating apps. There's no need to go into traditional matchmaking. When you are accessing all those profiles, what is your feeling about distance as far as do you need to be looking in the same city? Do you need to be like geographically? Not every We're in New York. There's a huge pool of singles in New York. There's some of our listeners who are in smaller places. How do they proceed? 
it's hard when you're in the smaller cities and there aren't as many singles. One client came my way. She was a really big fish in a really small town. There were three eligible singles. She went out with all three, and she's like, I'm never going to meet anyone. So I played around. I went on to Hinge for her. You can play around with your location. So I had her searching in all every city within three hours on a flight. Um, and she ended up meeting someone. I'm not going to say where she lives, but he was, you know, just short of three hours of a flight, and they're madly in love, and it worked out. But if you live in New York City, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, there are abundant of singles. So we know the apps are free in yes. most cases. Dating isn't. No. So let's talk about some of the costs involved in dating and where it's actually worth spending the money, because you, you're you an expert. When we talk about appearance, you talked a little bit about the appearance in the photo and what's important, but what about in general? I mean, where do you think people should spend money? What matters these days? I don't necessarily think people have to spend money on a great pair of shoes. I don't think it's about that. Dating apps are basically dating on steroids. So 10 years ago, a single wasn't traditionally going on 10 different dates in a week. Now, given all the singles and the dating app use, it's easy to set up 10 different meets in one week. Those can't all be lunches and dinner. It's too expensive and it's too time-consuming. I highly recommend for a first meet, leave it to Starbucks, have a cup of coffee, 20 minutes, see if there's even a spark. If there's a spark, it can be upgraded to a drink or a dinner. Um, but go out with someone a few times before springing for U2 tickets or, you know, Dear Evan Hansen. That doesn't need to happen until something feels like it has legs in building a relationship. What's your advice for people who are going on a lot of those first dates? How do you get more second dates? It's tough. You know, some people always get asked on second dates, and they're like, oh, I don't want to go on a second date. And then there's the client who doesn't get asked on the second date, and it's, why don't I get asked on a second date? I think be yourself. Don't say anything offensive, obviously. Um, you know, be kind, smile. Have a few good stories in your back pocket. Ask questions. Listen to answers. Listening is really important, isn't Listening's it? Listening's key. Not everyone does it. Do you teach the people that you work with to be better listeners or to be better daters? Do you ever go out to coffee with them and say, like, let's pretend we're on a date and this is how it's supposed to go? I haven't had to because I'm pretty good at summing people up and figuring out where there's room for improvement quickly. So once I'm working with someone where I see, hey, maybe you can listen a little bit more. Maybe you're monopolizing the conversation. Maybe you're not being flexible enough. I state it right away. Hey, why don't we try this? Because they're paying me, so I may as well let them know where there's room for improvement. Otherwise, what's the point of using me? You know, you didn't mention what your basic package is, so just tell Sorry. us. Uh, so there's someone can come to me for a dating profile, which is 500. Someone can do the dating profile plus dating coaching, which is 1,000, and then the full shebang, which is everything. It's 2,000. And how long was that? A, man, a, a month. month. Okay. All right. It's just good for us to know, like, what's in the realm. And if you hire a matchmaker to do the person-to-person -person thing, how much is that? The fee ranges. I don't pay that much attention to what my competitors are doing. I have a very different business model than most. 
I've heard people charging up to $25,000 for a match. And in saying that, I should probably raise my price. However, (laughs) this is working for me right now. And I get to help a lot of people. And I love what I do. So I'll just keep it where it is. One of the things that we know well is that where couples have conflict, it often revolves around money. Absolutely. So as you're putting people together, how do you do it in a way that minimizes that conflict? You don't really know if someone's a spender or a saver until you're in the conversation. I once had a guy off the bat who made a comment about not wanting to spend money. And I was like, dude, why? Just save that for six dates in. Um, she's not going to go out with you now. You ruined it. I don't know. If you put a spender and a spender together, they're going to have a lot of fun. You know, by the sixth date, they're planning a trip to Bali first class. Um, If you have a saver and a spender, you know, it depends where on the continuum the spender is and where on the continuum the saver is. If you've got two savers, I mean, that's the most organized, goal-oriented couple. You know, I would love to live in their house. Um, I'm sure... They plan well. Everyone's different. You know, sometimes it's a deal breaker if someone has, you know, $30,000 on their credit card. Who wants to pick up that debt? You have to get into date six often before you figure those things out. The nice thing that I like about the internet is that people can snoop. So I suggest that all my clients get a last name, do a Google search, nothing too obnoxious, but you can see how much someone paid for their house. If they're working at a public company, you can see what their bonus was or what their package is. Um, It just, you can know where someone went to school, if they have income, if they're working. You can see on LinkedIn if there's a gap in their employment. I mean, it's basic stuff. Having a job and having a career is attractive for both men and women. Absolutely. One of the things I thought was interesting is that you say dating leads with the heart, not the wallet. What do you mean? A date could be at the fanciest, nicest restaurant with the yummiest food on the planet. If you're with someone that you don't like, it's not an enjoyable experience. It's really about two people connecting, enjoying one another's company. The price doesn't really matter. Um, And if you're going on all these dates and spending all this money on the flip side and you meet someone great— At the end of the day, no one's saying, oh, I spent $11,000 on dates for the year because they're just so happy that they found their one. You know who knows that? Anybody who watches The Bachelorette. Because the best dates are the ones where they kick off their shoes and go to the person's apartment and eat Chinese food. Right. Right? And And they have fun. And and they pet the dog or they meet the kid or, I mean, it's very trite. But it's It's true. true. It's not the fairy princess dates. They never marry the ones they take on the fairy princess dates. It's the person who you can be yourself and laugh. And laughter's free. There is, while I'm talking about the television shows that I watch incessantly, there is an episode of Sex in the City where Miranda goes to a speed dating event. I don't know if you remember this, but she finds that saying she's an attorney turns men off. And so she starts to say she's a flight attendant and that turns men on. Now, Sex in the City was a long time ago and Sarah Jessica Parker has a whole new show. But do women still have to do this? No. I am in the apps, and I think that I spend more time than any human being on the dating apps. My female clients who are successful hit it out of the park. It is attractive to have a career, and it is even more attractive to be successful. I'm not defining success as monetary success, just being passionate and loving what you do and having your day filled up by enjoying going to work. 
Okay. All right. Which is, that's really good to know. I mean, I'm, you know, it's always how I have kind of approached things because I don't know how you can downplay your career, especially if it's something that you love and still be authentic at the same time. It's like keeping a whole piece of you back. And also, Bright is something to be proud of. Someone who is academic and successful in that area. Guys, I am on both sides. Guys love a smart girl. Oh, double Stanford? Great. Can't wait to meet her. I mean, it's attractive. Last question. When you realized you were good at this, whether you're doing this online or offline, if you're somebody out there who's looking for somebody themselves, what are the signs that this is a good person to go out with? Besides being employed. (laughs) Besides being employed. Although I like employment. But someone who responds to you. Someone who's willing to meet you halfway for a first date or come to you. So for my females, I always like for the guy. If they live uptown, let them come up and meet you. Um, If someone only has one night free during the week, hopefully the guy can be flexible and figure something out in their schedule to meet on that one night. But someone who asks questions, it's not so one-sided. Is there anything that could be a common ground? Oh, you went to Camp Westmont growing up. I went to Camp Westmont too. Oh, we missed each other by six years. We can talk about that on a date, whatever it is. But something that when they show up to meet, even if there's not a spark, they can have a conversation for 20 minutes. Meredith Golden, the company is Spoon Meets Spoon. Great advice. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We look forward to doing it again. And we'll be right back. So our producer, Kelly Hultgren, has joined me in the studio with her millennial perspective. Hi, Kelly. Hello. How are you? You were laughing. I was dying out there. A few funny one-liners, particularly talking about the photo with the owl of you being the go-to photo of what would spark interest. That was really funny for me. Uh, What else were you laughing about? You know why I said that? Yeah, why photo with an owl? Can we go back to that? We can go back to that. So I was just in Japan, which was fascinating and more foreign than any place I've ever been in my life. Mm -hmm. But they have these owl cafes where, yes, yes, in Tokyo, they have owl cafes. And I did not do this, but my cousin did. We were traveling with her and her husband. And you go in and you pay money to spend a half an hour petting an owl. (laughs) The owls, like, come and they land on your arm. And then you can take pictures. And um, Okay, I would do that. (laughs) She said they're kind of like cat cafes. I think there's a cat cafe in Brooklyn, which I can't go to because I'm allergic. But the owls kind of gross me out, actually. Really? Yeah, she said, and and I'm a Harry Potter fan. That's what I was. My segue was going to be like, if it's an opportunity to feel like I have Hedwig on my arm, then I'm going to take it. I yeah, I totally get that. I just she said they were softer than any puppy. I was also laughing about the height comment because I hear that from my girlfriends all of the time that they refuse to date a guy shorter than insert height here. You know, I think this is so silly. I I mean, and I was set up on a blind date with my first husband. I just go. Did you wear heels? No, uh, maybe. I came from work, so I was probably wearing heels. I had no idea how tall he was. I didn't ask how tall he was. My friend at the next desk had gone to high school with him, and she said, he's really funny. You should meet him. And I was like, okay. I don't get the downside in meeting somebody that seems like they might be a nice person, except 
I'm sure if you're dating 10 times a week, going out with somebody where you think based on a picture that there's no potential probably doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But if you're not dating 10 times a week and somebody says you should meet this person, you should just meet this person. Right. Or even the fact that, you know, great sense of humor, really smart, has the same interest as you. Like those things to me lead height as well. I'm not one of the people... I'm six feet tall, and three of my ex-boyfriends have been either my height, they like to say, or shorter than me. (laughs) They like to say. They like to say and think. But to me, it's all about confidence. So I've dated someone who's 5'7", 5'8". He was 5'7", but for him, I will say 5'8". We're still friends. And he think. Yeah, we are. We are. And he'll he'll (laughs) listen to this, and he'll know exactly that I'm talking about him. But his confidence and who he is— made me feel like he was larger than life in a way. Well, and my friend Bob, not to throw him under the bus, but he married his wife. I mean, they were he married her for many reasons, and she is a wonderful, wonderful person. But he does say one of the reasons he married her is because she's significantly taller than he is, and he wanted to have tall kids. I love that. So what do we have? What do we have <laughs> right, from questions. Our first question is from a listener who would like to remain anonymous, which is totally fine. Just let me know when you send in your question. She writes, my boyfriend doesn't want to get legally married because of concerns about about student loan debt. He has close to 300000 in debt, and I have around 100000 in debt. We are both enrolled in loan forgiveness programs, which are income-based. He is worried that if we combine both incomes, that our payments and taxes will be higher. Is this a valid concern? You should talk to an accountant. Taxes definitely will, will be higher. There is a marriage penalty. And, um, and so, yeah, a- absolutely talk to an accountant before you do it. A lot of people are waiting to get married for a whole bunch of reasons. There doesn't seem to be the stigma attached to um, to living together or being together for a very, very long time that there used to be. And I, I would just say, you know, talk to an accountant, run the numbers, understand you are not responsible for his debt and he's not responsible for your debt in this case. Okay, great. Now one from Shannon. I have frozen my husband's and my credit per your advice. Does this account have any negative effects? Our son will be applying to college in a year and a half and we will be applying for loans. My husband was wondering if this freeze will look bad. No, this freeze will not look bad. But when you apply for those loans, you will have to unfreeze Mm. so that the creditor can get access to your file so they can see what's going on. And it's also a really good time to point out that our government gave us a nice little gift and passed legislation that made freezing your credit free. Thank you so much, government. Right. So it's not in effect yet, but it will take effect, we're expecting, in the fall. So that is really good news. That's amazing news. And does freezing, unfreezing the act and going back and forth, does it affect your credit at all? Nope. Okay. No, it's it's like checking your credit yourself. Something that you do, that's sort of a good guideline. If you do it to your own credit, it doesn't affect your credit. Oh. I mean, if you spend a lot of money and <laughs> take out more credit, that does. But, yeah. you know, actions that you take with your own credit file tend not to affect your own credit. 
personal polls don't. That's right. a really good rule of thumb. Okay. And we'll do one more from Charlene. I'm 50 years old with 430000 in retirement savings Woo-hoo. and current income is 90000 Yeah, it's pretty great. Part of the 430000 includes 60000 in an annuity from when I worked in public education. I haven't moved that money because I like the idea of having something I can depend on for a monthly income when I retire because of the volatility of stocks where the other monies are. Here's my question. Does it make sense to move that money to a stock fund now because I have another 15 years for retirement and then move some portion of the monies back to annuity when I get close to retirement? It depends on the annuity and it depends on the rate of return in the annuity. So annuities tend to, the kind that it sounds like she's talking about is not a variable annuity where you invest the money in stocks and moves with the market, but it sounds like it's an annuity with a flat rate of return. It depends on what the rate of return is. So I have an annuity and the guaranteed rate of return in my annuity is four and a half percent which has been really good in the past few years compared to the bond portion of my portfolio because interest rates have been so low, have not been returning a lot of money. And so the way that I've been approaching this and the way I think you should probably approach it, she should probably approach it, is to consider this a portion of her less risky component of her portfolio and take the risk in other areas. Depending on when she got this annuity, did she say 10 years? Is that? She's had the annuity from when she worked in public education, but she did not say how long ago that was. So depending on when she got it, the interest rates have changed and they have likely gone down, in which case she's not going to do as well buying it again in the future. Plus, there are often fees when you purchase one, and you may have restrictions on when you can and can't get your money out. So I would say take a look at the return. If the return is still compelling, I'd leave it alone, and I would allow – I would take the risk in the other portion of her portfolio. And I just want to say I do like this idea, however you do it, of – figuring out some way when we do retire to take Social Security, which is an annuity in and of itself, and combine it with some other form of income that we know will cover our fixed expenses. We all need to have money in the markets, and we need to have money in the markets pretty much forever because we're going to live such a long time. But what we lost in the transition from a pension system to a 401k system is this notion that we're going to get this paycheck every single month. We now have to produce our own paychecks every single month, and that's why it's so important to save a lot of money in our 401ks and our other retirement accounts. But converting a chunk of that 401k money or investing it in a way that it produces a predictable income stream to cover those fixed expenses in retirement is, to me, a really comforting notion. Great. Thank you so much, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. Absolutely. It is time for our weekly Thrive segment, and this week we're talking face. I don't know about all of you, but I do not wake up looking flawless, hashtag flawless, like Beyonce. That's where our skincare and makeup routines come in. Looking flawless comes with a price tag of about $8 a day, according to some recent research. In fact, 
85% of women apply an average of 16 different skincare and cosmetic products every single day. East Coasters, specifically women in New York, Connecticut, and West Virginia, spend more, an average of $11 a day on their face routine, and it amounts to three. $100,000 in lifetime expenses. Ladies on the West Coast take a more relaxed approach. It's about $4 a day on their faces. So I took a look at my medicine chest after reading a story about this. I clocked in at about eight products in the morning with another two at night. Kelly is shaking her head. How many products do you use? This is just bonkers to me. Because you're not 53. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not saying yours is bonkers, but I think when I first heard, was it 16 between skincare and makeup? Products. Products. Okay, so if, if we're factoring cosmetics and let's say an eyebrow pencil counts as one cosmetic, then I can see how that number amounts to 16. But I think I use, not consistently, two to three. Oh every single day. And that includes like morning and evening. But I'm at the point, like I've gone into Kiehl's recently because I also grew up in Arizona, as people know, and I'm soon to look like a leather bag. No, it's, you're not. It's coming. It's absolutely going to come. I was in the sun ever since I was a baby. So I've gone into Kiehl's and being like, I'm 27. I see some lines coming in. What do I do? So they gave me some serums and some more heavy duty things to start adding. So I can see how it will eventually the, num add up. the number will add up. But it's still to think of the cost in that way. I know. I can't wrap my head around it. Well, the thing that it made me do this story was to go into my medicine chest and realize how many products I bought because I was sold them uh -huh. that I don't use. Yep. And it will make me think twice the next time I pass a makeup counter. And my shout out and the reason I'm doing this story is that I think we should all do exactly the same. Thanks so much for joining me and Kelly today on Her Money. Thank you to Meredith Golden for the fantastic conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we will be back with another great guest. We'll talk soon. <laughs>